Well, amen. Good morning, Enon Baptist Church. Good morning. morning. There we go. The first crew was more alert. It's all good. Enon students, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, we spent some good time over the weekend enjoying God's word and one another's company and fellowship, good food, laughs, games, and again, most of all, Jesus Christ. Um, Again, Luke gave that introduction of who I am. I am grateful to have made a friend in Luke, and I'm grateful to beginning a friendship with your pastor, uh, Dr. Zach. And so hopefully uh, this won't be the last time y'all have me back. Yeah, I would love to come back to Alabama. How does that sound? I come hang out with y'all some more. Yeah, bring you greetings from that great state of Texas. And uh, my wife and three kids, uh, three other remaining kids at the house are eager that I get back. Uh, I've got my two oldest here with me. And so we've enjoyed worshiping Jesus with you all over this weekend. Believe it. Uh, that first night when I preached, I mean, they can tell you, we got in the car and I was turned up. I was all the way energized and I was like, let's go. And I was like, well, I got an 11 and an 8-year-old with me. I guess I should get some sleep. Um, but yeah, it was great, and what we'll do this morning is that we'll continue uh, to see how Jesus changes everything. And so as we do that, what I will do is I'll ask you to stand if you're willing and able. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to make our way over to Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'll pray, and we can be seated. The word of God reads this way from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And this is God's word to us, and all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to you, we pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that the Spirit would have free reign to touch and move and change hearts in this place. Oh God, we love you for your word. We love you for who you are in our lives, Lord. Help us to seek you and not your blessings. Help us to to just seek you. We, We long for you, Lord. And so as your people gather this morning here in Enon, Lord, your your beloved people, your sons and daughters, we pray, Lord, that we would be edified. We pray that our hearts would be set upon Christ again, fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. You truly do change everything, Lord Jesus, and so we submit our hearts to your word right now, yielded to your spirit, and pray that as we sit here and look into the word, we pray that the word would look into us. 
lift our gaze to you yet again. And we ask that you would do it. Do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I would like to start our time this morning by quoting one of my favorite pastors. Uh, Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, lifts our eyes to the glories of a, a consummated reality that is to come. He states, our Lord's resurrection gives us a glimpse in one man of the future redeemed human race. The risen Jesus is a second Adam, a new beginning. And we who are believers share in his newness now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Becoming a Christian doesn't just add something to the old you, it creates a new you. Did you know, beloved, that Jesus is in the business of creating not just a new you, uh, he is doing much more than that. Jesus is changing everything. Jesus is making all things new. This is in connection with his divine plan. This is why we read in the prophet Isaiah, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. So over the weekend, we have gone from creation, fall, redemption, and this morning we arrive today at consummation. And again, we see from Colossians 1.16 that all things were created through him and for him, Jesus. That it's all terminating, all reality, all history is terminating on the glory of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says again in Romans 11.36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. And so what is this glory that the Bible continually refers to? What is this glory? In one way, we could consider it the weightiness of a new world with God in Christ without the presence of sin, death, and Satan. That there is a kind of glory that is awaiting the people of God that is yet to be experienced. And please remember, when we read from Paul, he has instructed us that the world and our bodies are in corruption or in bondage to the corruption of sin. But there is freedom coming for the children of God. A freedom that includes not only a new heavens and a new earth, but also includes a finality to our adoption as sons and daughters of God. That we will also have not only a consummated existence with God, but we will also have the redemption of our bodies. And we just sang this song about being clothed by the lilies and and God providing for the sparrows. This is, beloved, this is no dry, detached kind of consummation. Uh, this, This consummation is an overflow out of the heart of God. That it is, it is a longing of his heart to see us 
experience him as we were created to experience and worship him. And so let's look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5 together to help give us a better understanding of this consummation and this experience of being with God in the kingdom without sin, death, and Satan. The scene just before chapter 21 is a prophetic vision lands right after the Lord's judgment on Satan and his ultimate defeat of death as they are thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is open and the the names are reviewed therein and that those who do not find themselves in this book were also thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is a staggering close to the scene of redemptive history. It's staggering because it shows us that we are inheriting the fullness of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. But even though we're inheriting this and it's coming to a close, redemptive history that is, this portion of history is not without the judgment of God. It's not void of that. This verse shows us that what is happening for us is of great blessing, but what is happening just prior to that is is of great detriment to those who have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last night we talked about the redemption piece to this redemptive scope and understanding the trajectory that the word of God gives us as Christians, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. There's a way that we navigate through life with these categories and that redemption should motivate us and make us more bold and courageous to to proclaim this gospel and proclaim our savior king. And so now, as we embark on understanding something more about consummation, we should also keep in mind that there are those who will not experience this kind of fullness of redemption, this fullness of the consummated promises of God, that what awaits them is not a new heavens and a new earth, but the lake of fire. We should be very serious and and very sober-minded to make sure that we are doing our part to, to proclaim this good king to proclaim his good gospel to those who will not be receiving consummation but eternal condemnation. And we look here at this staggering scene and we also see that it's not just about the judgment. Again, it's really about the faithfulness of God. What's beautiful about this picture here is that it reminds you of Genesis 1-1 as well because the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The same God who created then is the God who is creating now. He's been faithful. He's never changed. God is faithful, and he will bring about his good promises in due time. If you notice here in verse 1, he says that, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. What's going on there when we read about the sea being no more? Well, when you look at creation, you realize that the sea is something that is uncontrollable. It can't be sustained. You, you can't manipulate it to do what you want it to do. And we see right here in the scriptures that the very thing that is uncontrollable in humanity and in creation, Jesus, the God-man, is going to subdue it. The Bible says that the sea will be no more. That which is a representation of chaos 
and that which is uncontrollable in our world, he subdues. He's got the infinite mighty power to control it. So he says that the sea will be no more. It's a beautiful picture here. Because how many times have we just, you know, had an opportunity or had some kind of interaction where we just couldn't control it? I mean, some of us have a hard enough time, you know, walking across a basketball court, let alone control a sea. But the Bible says that the sea will be no more. Our sovereign Lord Jesus is in control of the things that are incontrollable or uncontrollable. Verse 2 goes on and says that I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Throughout the life of God's people, Israel, Jerusalem was the place where the glory of God was displayed, especially because that's where the temple of God was located. And wherever the temple of God was located, there was the glory of God and the presence of God and the worship of God and the praise of God. And what we have here is an example of that. We see that if you recount back and and think to the ark being brought into the temple in the day of King David, the Bible says that the priest could not stand to minister because the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, could you imagine that we all come in here to worship and we can't get in? Pastor Zach can't preach because the glory has descended on this place. Now, that's an amazing kind of image to have in mind. That the presence of God is so thick that you cannot even come to worship. And that's the idea here that that if we have a glorious city, Jerusalem, coming down from God, how glorious is that? How glorious is it to consider the holy city coming down? So what kind of glory is being put on display here? What kind of glory is being experienced on this day when the new heavens and the new earth are revealed? Well, this verse is actually really helpful because it gives us the illustration right there in the context. He says that it's coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I know some of you are familiar with the cultural references, and so you know about Meghan Merkle and her marriage being wedded into the royal family. It's a A beautiful time. I mean, the world gets a televised front row seat to this wedding. In this wedding, uh, Meghan Merkel is getting out of the royal cab. She's making her way up the steps. Her train is just like flowing, you know, I don't know how many feet behind her. It's a beautiful scene, and it'll just bring tears to your eyes to see it. But when she gets up to the top of the sanctuary and they open the double doors, this edifice to this beautiful sanctuary, you have the horns and everything, and dun, 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 it's just a, a wonderful scene of this royal, majestic wedding ceremony. And as she stands at the front and is getting ready to make her way down the aisle, underneath her veil is this tiara that was worn by another queen and this thing is bedazzled and shining and glimmering through her veil so much so this tiara that she wore cost 
$2.8 million. Now you imagine the kind of weightiness that that has on her crown and, and the glory of that piece of jewelry. I mean, that thing was shining, y'all. Y'all should go check it out. Go on YouTube. Look, at it's just a beautiful scene. Now, that's one kind of glory. But the Bible also talks about the bridegroom being as the sun coming out of its tent in Psalm 19. Now, you imagine the glory of a bride decked out in her gown and her train and the tiara. And then imagine the groom and they two meet like the sun shining. And there's this full-orbed glory being experienced in God's presence. And the Bible says that the city coming down is like that, but multiplied by a hundred. And so, this is an amazing picture of what God is doing. It's an amazing picture. I think about my own wedding, and I think about, um, I did not cry at my wedding when my wife was coming down the aisle, call me weird or whatever, but I didn't cry when she was coming down the aisle, but when we were standing on the altar, and our pastor, mentor, was uh, going through the ceremony and preaching this beautiful sermon, he gets into Ephesians 5, and he says that when he, when he says that the husband and wife are like the Christ, are like Christ and the church, I broke down and just wept. To, to play into the metaphor of Christ and his church, Christ and his bride, I mean, it just, it just broke me. That I, as one who is sinful, get the opportunity to be a part of this. It was amazing. And how many of us have this image in our minds of the glory that awaits you? How many of us have the image of this glorious kingdom that is for us? This is what we need to have in mind. This is what we need to think about when we think about a consummated reality in the presence of God, that there will be glory unparalleled. There is no precedent for this kind of glory. There is no precedent. You can't look anywhere on God's green earth and say, man, I experienced that once before. You've never experienced anything like this. Verse 3 moves us further up and into the reality of this consummation. And John, the apostle, says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This should remind us of where it all began. For it was in the garden of Eden where the voice of God was initially heard by man. And look at man. Look at man. Meaning, men and women. Adam and Eve even, how they sinned against God, how they rebelled against this voice, how the command of God was given to them in such generosity and such goodness, and yet they still rebelled against the voice. They rebelled against the command of God. And here in this particular section of Scripture, oh, how beautiful it is. A loud voice coming from the throne, this royal moment where the goodness of God, the king, the royal voice comes to sinful humanity again, redeemed in Christ through the blood of Christ, and he speaks to them. He's on speaking terms with those who were his enemies, and he says that the dwelling place 
of God is with man. This is good news. This is good news. In this scene, we hear the word of God confirming that God's desire is to be with us and for us to be with him. Sin, remember, creation, fall, sin, it it interrupted that. It put a great spiritual chasm between us and God. But thanks be to God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who changed that for us, came and was our substitute and made a place for us with him. He bridged the chasm, brought us back to God so that we would have an experience in this consummated reality. And because God's desire and because our Lord's desire is that we would be with him, we do not have a God who is a God who is deistic. That is, his intention from his divine plan has always to be, to be with us. It's always been that. Deism is this belief that The supreme being, or this God, so to speak, is a creator nonetheless, but he doesn't intervene in the universe. He has nothing to do with what he's created. That's deism, and that is not the God we serve. The God we serve is extremely interactive with us, extremely concerned about our lives, so much so that he wraps himself in human flesh and comes to be with us as the God-man to go through the sufferings that you and I experience, to go through life in a body that gets weak and hungers and thirsts. He said on the cross, I thirst. And here we see that our Lord, he is not a stranger to our circumstances. He brings himself into our earthly proximity to feel what we feel. But this is just consistent with who Jesus is, right? Didn't he say to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Isn't this like our king? This is what he has said. And this is the divine and eternal assurance of a life with God in his glorious kingdom. This is the consummated reality. That in verse 3, we see that Jesus is making good on his promise. God himself will be with them as their God. Now, the intimacy of this interaction with God does not stop there. Look at verse 4. He says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All the former things are passed away. I love how John does that. He just hits you with, you know, thing after thing, just showing you how good God is in terms of what this reality is going to be like. Let's zoom in on this real quick. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Beloved, how close do you have to be to wipe away tears from eyes? You got to be extremely close. 
And usually when tears are being wiped away, the tears are being wiped away from the person who's crying the tears. Wow, does this not say something about our union with Christ as his body? That he himself will wipe away the tears. The text goes on and says that death shall be no more. Just like the sea will be no more, death shall be no more. Just like the sea was uncontrollable and he subdued it, death will be no more and he will subdue death. It is essentially saying that those things will go out of existence. That the consummated reality of the kingdom of God and the glories of heaven, they will only obtain and have the presence and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. And then he says, mourning, crying, pain, former things. All that's going to be done away with. In other words, all things that are fallen and affected by sin will go out of existence. And that's good news. That is extremely good news. Not only that, this reminds you that God is going to wipe away these things from our memory. That is what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, remember not the former things, nor the things of old. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the shameful, the guilty, those who have committed sins of various degrees, having something lodged in your mind and in your heart that you just can't get out, something you saw, something you said, something that was said by you, something that you perpetrated, a sin that you've been forgiven of, but you still can't get it out of your mind. In the new heavens and in the new earth, you will not remember those things. Your mind, your conscience will be filled with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will not remember any of this. Isn't that amazing? I can't fathom not remembering bad stuff that I've done. It stings me now to consider the foolishness that I was involved in before coming to Christ. And even sometimes the foolishness that I still commit. That those things will be wiped away from our memories. These things are going to pass away. He emphasizes it. Not only will it be no more, he's saying it's going to be passed away. It's not going to be there. Then verse 5 goes on. Our Savior King says of himself, he's changing everything. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. But he's just not changing things. Let's get, let's get, Let's get in on this because he says, I am making all things new. Heavy on that pronoun there. Because it's not about what you accomplish. It's not. It's not, beloved. 
So often in our Christian walk, we are very concerned about what we can accomplish and what we are bringing about. That does not negate the fact that we are seeking to bear fruit for Christ. That's not the point. The point is, is that we often confuse fruit bearing with our role and Jesus becomes a subservient to what we are accomplishing. This verse says, I am making all things new. I'm doing it. And that's good news for you and me. You can rest easy. This is a part of what it means to take upon him, uh, take upon you his yoke. That he's going to bring it about. For sure, by the grace of God, set your hand to the plow. Do the works that should be done as a believer, but know that the grace of God and the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish his divine purposes. It doesn't terminate on what you can accomplish. It really doesn't. He doesn't need us to accomplish what he has intended to accomplish. And then look at this. He goes on and says again. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love how that ends, that section ends, because it reminds me, kind of like the law of the Medes and Persians. When you read in the Old Testament, when the law of the Medes and Persians was something was written down by the king, it couldn't be changed. When the edicts were written down, it couldn't be changed. It was, it was said by the king and therefore it was written into the, the books and the annals and it was recorded law in history and the law did not get changed because the king said so. Well, if that can be said of the laws of the Medes and Persians, well then, beloved, what do we have here? We've got, we've got the creator. We've got the Lord Jesus, the king who's reigning, and he's telling John, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Perhaps the illustration can help with how serious this is when he writes this down. When he says, write this down, because perhaps some of you, you've got a car on loan. You go to the car dealership and you say, you know what? You know, I did, you know, promise to pay that car note. And uh, I did put my signature down. I wrote my name down. But you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to pay that. But I am going to keep the car. You're going to jail. Or you're going to at least be sued. But Jesus does not renege on his word. And so therefore, he says, write this down. This is going to get accomplished. This is going to get accomplished. And how powerful it is to think about this reality of the final consummation and the work of God. One writer says, the final consummation is God's work and for God's glory. And beloved, what does that mean for us? That means that as we are involved in following Christ as his disciples, that means we need to wait upon God, to wait upon his promise, because his promise is true, and the coming kingdom is true, and it will come to pass. It will arrive. It will arrive. That's why in Isaiah, again, the prophet says, those that wait upon the Lord... They shall renew their strength. They will soar like eagles, trusting in the Lord, waiting upon the Lord to experience this consummated reality. We sang earlier that first song that 
The Lord has done great things. And so we wait upon the God who does great things. We're eager to wait. We're willing to wait. And so as we turn our minds to what we've been thinking through uh, just kind of over the weekend, this, this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, the whole sweep of the Bible, having these things in mind helps us to understand how to walk out our own personal discipleship in the sense that these categories help us to view the world in a particular way. It gives us a redemptive scope of history and how Jesus is changing everything. And we are not lacking. We are not lacking. We have all we need. He truly is Jireh. He truly is the one who changes everything. And that in this scene here in Revelation 21, we see what awaits us as sons and daughters of God. And for those that are here that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and this consummated reality is not yours, and you could care less about Revelation 21. You could care less about anything that you've heard sung or preached here today. We would only plead with you to be reconciled to the one who is coming again. Because there will be a beauty, unparalleled and unprecedented, that will be experienced by those who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be tragedy and a horrific scene for those who have not bowed the knee. He is the king, and he promises a consummated reality in his kingdom. And so to that end, we say, come, Lord Jesus. And as we pray, Evan and his team is going to bring us back uh, for worship, and let's pray together. Father, we do pray that our hearts would be submitted to you, that we would remember what you have said in your word, and that as we remember these truths, Lord, that our minds and our hearts would be transformed to experience your promises eagerly. And Lord, we need you. And so we do say, come, Lord Jesus. Your promises are true. And we desire to know you and to know your glory and your presence. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.